0: Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. This is the second part of a special two-part episode on the Andes plane crash survivors. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you go back and do so. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. In 218 BC, the Carthaginian general Hannibal led a massive army across southern Spain to attack Rome during the Second Punic War. He had with him more than 90,000 foot soldiers, 12,000 cavalry, and three dozen elephants. He and his troops entered France and crossed the Alps, placing the elephants at the front of the column. The Celts and the Gauls who lived in the mountains had never seen such gigantic beasts before, and they observed them with a healthy mix of fear and superstition. Some of them even dropped boulders on the soldiers, but, for the most part, the Carthaginian army remained unscathed until they got further into the mountains. By the time Hannibal's army reached Little St. Bernard Pass on October 26th, they were all exhausted, and word had begun to spread that they couldn't go on further. Hannibal tried urging his men on by telling them they had already gotten the hard part out of the way. He said they had already climbed the ramparts of Rome and their destination wasn't much farther along their path. This was a lie. The problem was the route down the Alps was far steeper and more treacherous than it was on the way up from France. On top of that, November storms had covered the glaciers with a heavy blanket of snow that just kept getting worse the deeper they got into the mountains. Although Hannibal's army faced no human enemies during their journey through the Alps, they did face a series of other deadly challenges in particular the crushing force of the snow itself. Sub-zero temperatures, accidental falls down steep cliffs, and a number of other disasters wore down the Carthaginians' numbers. By the time the army reached the plains of the eastern slope, more than 18,000 men, 2,000 horses, and several of the elephants had died, and at least half of those were buried alive under a series of deadly avalanches. Avalanches have always been one of the greatest threats facing people who attempt to travel through or even live near snow-covered mountains. In general, avalanches come in two main varieties. Slab avalanches made of a shelf of tightly packed snow that gets jettisoned down a mountain after the weak snow underneath detaches. Or powder snow avalanches, which occur when a loose snowpack grows so heavy over time it collapses, picking up speed as it thunders down the mountain. An avalanche can create an immense wall of snow moving at hundreds of miles per hour, generating enough deadly force to bury entire towns or even destroy buildings. Human beings caught in the path of an avalanche can be instantly crushed under the tremendous weight of all the snow, or can become impossibly trapped, unable to move their limbs, and then they will often either suffocate or die of hypothermia. These were the conditions facing the survivors of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. In October 1972, an amateur rugby team from Uruguay chartered a flight across the Andes Mountains to take them to a match in Santiago, Chile. But a combination of mechanical problems and pilot error caused the plane to crash in the mountains. The plane carried 40 passengers and 5 crew. 12 people died in the initial crash. Several days later, the search and rescue mission was called off, leaving the remaining survivors to do anything they could in order to stay alive in the frigid conditions. They had no survival gear and hardly any food. Several more people would die from severe injuries and exposure as the days wore on. Within just over a week, the remaining survivors began to contemplate a grisly possibility in order to survive. The group collectively decided they would need to commit the act of anthropophagy or consuming the bodies of the dead for food. It was close to midnight on their 17th day in the Andes when disaster struck the survivors once again. The remaining passengers from the doomed flight lay huddled together in the makeshift shelter they had built inside the plane's fuselage when the avalanche engulfed the wreckage. Before any of the survivors knew what hit them, a massive wall of snow came hurtling down the mountain and completely covered the plane, filling the fuselage nearly to the roof. I'm Nate Hale, a.k.a. the Abominable Snow Podcaster, and this is The Conspirators. Roy Harley couldn't sleep. He heard the rumble of the avalanche just moments before it buried the plane. He managed to jump up the moment he noticed the strange low rumble that grew rapidly louder. But after the snow filled the fuselage, this left Roy stuck in a standing position up to his waist. While most of the others became inextricably trapped in a tangle of bodies and snow, unable to move, Roy pulled himself loose and burrowed over to Carlitos Paez, who had been sleeping next to him. He was able to claw away the snow covering Carlitos' face and torso. But even still, Carlitos remained trapped and unable to move. Roy frantically turned and began attempting to dig out anyone else he could get to. He managed to partially uncover Roberta Canessa and Fido Strouch, but Roy quickly realized things were growing more dire by the minute. He desperately crawled for the small hole left at the entrance to the plane. He tried digging with both hands, but he soon realized this was futile. Eventually, Fido Strauch, Canessa, Paez, and Mancho Sabella all worked their way free enough that they were able to join in and begin digging with both hands. They attempted to free as many people as they could. They quickly realized that some of their friends were completely buried beneath the snow and they were worried they might suffocate if they didn't get to them soon. Nando Parado was among those who lay there submerged beneath the snow. Initially, he tried not to panic. He had read an article in Reader's Digest once saying that it was possible to live underneath the snow in an avalanche. He took shallow breaths, but even still, the weight of the snow and other bodies above him made it difficult to breathe. For a short while, he became convinced he was going to die, right up until the moment someone wiped the snow off his face. Eight people died in the avalanche, including Team Captain Marcel Perez and Liliana Maytol, the last remaining female survivor. Liliana was a particularly kind and caring woman who had become like a mother to the wounded. Marcel Perez had been the team captain, and up until that point, he had assumed the leadership role among the survivors. Nando, Parado, and the other survivors quickly realized that they were running out of air in the snow-packed fuselage. Nando found a piece of metal in the luggage racks and used it to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing them with an airway. He and the others spent the next two days tirelessly digging a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface. But by the time they finally burst through to open air, they ran into yet another setback. On October 31st, when the survivors dug their way to the surface, they were instantly driven back inside the fuselage because outside, a raging blizzard was going on. The survivors spent three days packed inside the snow-filled cabin with both the living and the dead. During that time, the decision was made they needed to eat to keep up their strength. That meant they were once again forced to turn to the only food source available to them: the bodies of their dead friends. During that time, cousins Eduardo and Fido Strauch, along with Daniel Fernandez, took over harvesting flesh from their deceased comrades. By the time the survivors were finally able to dig their way out and emerge from the fuselage, they were in worse shape than they had been before the avalanche. Not only had they lost several more of their friends, including their leader, but now their only shelter was mostly buried in the snow. Even before the avalanche, the group had come to realize the only way they were going to survive would be if they saved themselves. They had found a small transistor radio early on and had heard the devastating news the search and rescue team had called off their search after only a few days. As the days wore on and the sun came out, some of the snow began to melt off the fuselage, but that created yet another problem. You see, the fuselage was lying at an angle, and the group began to worry that as the snow melted it might cause the plane's wreckage to slip even further. The survivors knew they were living on borrowed time. Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, and some of the others decided that their best shot at rescue was to actually climb their way out over the mountains towards civilization. Several of the survivors had heard the co-pilot Dante Hector Laguera, in the hours before he died insisting that they had passed Curicó to the west. This gave the group some vague sense where they might be in relation to the Andes. Unfortunately, the co-pilots' dying statements were wildly off. They had not, in fact, passed Curico, and they were instead situated more than 50 miles further east than they thought as well. An expeditionary group was selected from among those still in the best physical condition. This included Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, Numa Turcati, and Antonio Vizantine, who went by the nickname Tintin. For a week prior to them leaving camp, these men were allocated the largest share of rations and spared any of the daily manual labor in order to allow them to build their strength. Knessa, a first-year medical student, suggested they give themselves a week before they headed out in the hope that the weather might begin to warm up a little. Numa Turkati was the only member of the group who had found himself unable to stomach human flesh, and he was losing weight at a rapid pace. Initially, Roberta Canessa and Nando Parado argued over which direction they should hike towards. Canessa felt that they would have an easier path if they headed east, while Nando insisted it would be better if they headed toward Chile to the west. There was even some speculation about whether the valley to the east might loop around west anyway, but the fact is, they just didn't know. They say that hindsight is twenty-twenty, and there was just so much about the terrain around them the survivors of Flight 571 weren't aware of. This included the fact that there was an abandoned summer resort hotel, the Hotel Termes, about 13 miles due east of the crash location. On November 15th, the expeditionary group climbed a hill about a mile to the east and found the intact tail section of the plane. This included the galley section, which meant they also found a little more food. There was a box of chocolates, some meat patties, a bottle of rum, and even a little medicine. They also found the plane's two-way radio, which, they knew if they could get it working, would mean they could call for help. The young men built a fire and spent the night inside the plane's tail section reading comic books and talking about their hope they could get the radio working once again. The following morning, the group attempted to hike further east, but this was also the group's first night sleeping outdoors, and this proved to be a complete disaster. They weren't equipped for it, and they had no protection against the elements. They all nearly froze to death that night, so the men decided to return to their friends and bring the radio back to camp with them. They hoped they could somehow power it up by using the plane's batteries. Roy Harley was an amateur radio enthusiast, so they gave him the task of getting the radio working. But unbeknownst to any of them, the plane's batteries were incompatible with the type of power the radio needed to work. After several more days, Harley threw up his hands and gave up. He instead decided to head with Nando Parado and Roberto Canessa back to the tail section, in case there was anything there he could use to make the radio work. But along the way, the group got caught in a fierce blizzard. Harley was already an emotional and physical wreck by that point. During that hike, he ended up laying down in the snow to die, but Parado forced him back to his feet, telling him they were getting out of there together. On November 15th, Arturo Neguero died from infected wounds that had turned gangrenous, followed by Rafael Echevarin three days later. On December 11th, day 60, Numa Turkati died as well. He had never been able to keep down the human flesh and instead starved to death. At the time of his death, Numa weighed only 55 pounds. By December, the members of the expeditionary team had changed their minds and decided their best shot at finding help lay to the west. They had learned their lesson from their treks to the east, and they knew that they needed to be better prepared this time, though. They fashioned snowshoes out of the seat cushions. Carlitos Paez had learned to sew from his mother when he was a boy. He sewed together an insulated sleeping bag out of insulation from the rear of the plane, along with some waterproof fabric and copper wire. With the sleeping bag, a team of three people could squeeze in together and share their body warmth so they didn't freeze to death at night. Nando Parado was the first to volunteer for the trek west across the mountains. Roberto Canessa was second, but he only reluctantly agreed along with Antonio Byzantine. Before they set out, Nando took a moment and found Carlitos Paez. Nando had a pair of red baby shoes his mother had given him before the plane took off to give as a present for his older sister. Before he left, Nando handed one of the shoes to Carlitos and told him he'd be back for it later. After that, Nando made the sign of the cross, and he, Roberto, and Antonio set off. The group had grossly underestimated how high they were up in the mountains. They thought they were at an elevation around 7,000 feet, when in fact they were actually closer to 11,800. They had no compass, no map, nor any climbing gear. Early on, as they scaled the mountain, Nando accidentally dislodged a small boulder that nearly killed Roberto Canessa. Roberto was furious at first, but his anger quickly subsided and instead turned to tears. The climb would have been incredibly difficult for even a seasoned mountain climber with all the proper equipment, which meant it was nearly impossible for Nando, Roberto, and Tintin at some points, the three of them sunk up to their hips in the snow that had been warmed by the summer sun. Yet still, the trio kept going against all odds. They had hoped they would reach the mountain summit the first night, but in fact, they weren't even close. They were forced to sleep out in the open on a rocky ledge overlooking an abyss that first night. The sleeping bag helped protect them, but Kinesis still described it as the worst night of his life. On their second day climbing, Roberto thought he saw a road to the east. He tried to persuade Nando to turn in that direction, but Nando flatly refused, insisting their salvation lay to the west. On the third morning of their journey, Canessa decided to remain at camp while Parado and Tintin kept climbing upward. Nando, Parado, and Tintin reached a nearly vertical wall that went up at least 300 feet and was completely encased in a thick sheet of ice. But Nando refused to give up. He used a stick to dig into the ice and create hand and footholds. He was determined to climb his way out or die trying. Nando climbed the mountain summit of 15,260 feet. But when he reached the summit, he fully expected he would see the green valleys of Chile on the other side. Instead, he was suddenly deflated when he realized he had reached what is called in mountain climbing a false summit. That's when you reach the top of the mountain, only to realize there were more mountain peaks you couldn't see before. Everywhere Nando looked, there was nothing but mountains for miles in every direction. He and Tintin climbed back down to Roberto Canessa to tell him what they had seen. That night as they made camp, they shared a bottle of cognac they had salvaged from the plane. Nando told Canessa, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? By the next morning, the trio realized this trip was going to take much longer than originally expected. They had only brought three days' worth of food with them, but they knew they could make their meager supplies stretch further if there were only two of them. They decided that Tintin would head back to the plane while Nando and Roberto would carry on hiking west through the mountains. Tintin readily accepted. Since it was all downhill, it only took them an hour to reach the crash site. This same trek had taken three days for the three of them heading in the opposite direction. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Nando and Roberto spent the next three hours climbing the mountain summit. By then Nando was practically ready to admit defeat, declaring they were as good as dead. But once they reached the top, Roberto scanned the terrain in all directions and he noticed two peaks on the western horizon that were not covered with snow. There was also a valley at the base of the mountain they stood on that appeared to wind its way through those same two peaks. The pair suddenly grew hopeful again. This might finally be the break they were looking for. On the summit, Nanda Parado told Roberto Canessa, We may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Canessa agreed and replied, You and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Let's go die together. The pair spent the next several days working their way down the mountain. They eventually found their way to the narrow valley that they had seen from above. As they trekked on, they were both relieved and alarmed as the weather warmed and the snow melted away. But this presented another problem because up until that point, the freezing temperatures had also helped preserve their food supply. But this was no longer the case. The snow gave way to a rocky landscape and a narrow trickle of water that would eventually lead them to a raging river. Along the way, they began to see signs of human habitation. First, they found a rusted can. Then, some other signs there had been humans camping along their path. Then, on the ninth day, they spotted some cows on the opposite side of the raging river. That evening, Nando and Roberto made camp near the riverside. By then, Roberto was in really rough shape. He had developed dysentery and Nando knew he needed to get medical attention for his friends soon. It was that same evening as the pair collected wood to start a fire that Roberto grew excited and began shouting and pointing toward the opposite shore. There were three men on horseback standing there. The river was so noisy it was impossible for them to communicate. Eventually, one of the men on the other side shouted a single word Nando and Roberto could just make out. BANANA. TOMORROW. The following day, the men returned. Nando shouted and waved at them. It was infuriating to Nando just how little hurry these men appeared to be to help them. One of the trio of muleteers scribbled a note and attached it to a rock. He threw the note across the water, and Nando picked it up and read it. He signaled back that he had nothing to write with, so the man then tied a pencil to a rock and threw that to him as well. Nando wrote a reply on the opposite side of the piece of paper. This note read, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for ten days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane there are still fourteen injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? One of the three muleteers, Sergio Catalan, read the note and signaled back to Nando that he understood. The three muleteers were stunned. How could it be possible that anyone could have survived the crash? Much less hike all the way across the Andes Mountains to find them. Sergio Catalan threw Nando and Roberto a hunk of bread. It was maddening to Nando and Roberto to watch the other men from afar sitting by a campfire and eating meat and drinking coffee. What they didn't know at the time was that Sergio would take off on horseback riding for ten hours to seek help. Along this journey, Sergio spotted another muleteer named Armando Cerda on the opposite shore of Rio Azufre, and he asked him to ride down to where the survivors were and bring them to safety. Sergio Catalan rode on and eventually found his way to the village of Puente Negro, where he immediately located the police station and told them about the survivors of Flight 571. News worked its way back to the Army Command in San Fernando, Chile. Meanwhile, Armando Cerda located Nando and Roberto and brought them on horseback to his mud shack where he fed them stew and let them sleep on a couple of straw mattresses. Eventually, they'd be brought back to Los Matins de Curico, where they were given proper medical care. Since the plane crash, Roberto Canessa had lost almost half his body weight, about 97 pounds. When news broke about the survivors of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, a swarm of reporters descended on Curico. But before the reporters could get to Nando and Roberto, the Chilean military had questions first. The Chilean Air Force brought in three Bell UH UH-1 helicopters to assist with the rescue. This team was led by a no-nonsense officer named Commander Carlos Garcia. When Garcia first met Nando and Roberto, he unfolded a map in front of them and told them to show him where the plane went down. When Roberto pointed to the location, Garcia refused to believe it. That site was too remote, he said. And that would also mean the pair would have had to have trekked for more than 70 miles across enormous mountains. Not even the most seasoned mountaineers could have made that climb with no equipment. But Nando insisted that Roberto was correct. Garcia told them that one of them would have to ride along with him in the helicopter to find the plane. Because a white plane would be almost impossible to spot against the snow. Roberto was still too weak so it was up to Nando. He reluctantly agreed. Nando was terrified of going up in the air once again. This was only something Roberto could relate to, but Nando would do anything to save his friends. One of the helicopters remained behind in reserve while the other two went up over the Andes to find the crash plane. Nando guided Garcia across the valley they had followed and from there to the mountain he and Roberto had climbed. All along, Garcia kept expressing his disbelief that they were in the right spot, but Nando insisted that this was the way. They reached the upper limits of how high the helicopter could fly as they flew over the mountain he and Roberto had climbed days earlier. The copter shook violently as they hovered over the site where Nando said the plane was near. Garcia began arguing with Nando, telling him he must be mistaken about where he thought the plane was, and that they couldn't keep hovering there all day. That was when Nando spotted a familiar ridge, and from there he was able to point out the vague shape of the wreckage against the snow. Back at camp, the other survivors were already feeling dejected from yet another false rescue. They had heard over the radio several days earlier that a plane had spotted a cross dug out in the snow in the Andes Mountains. At first, they were all elated because they thought the plane had spotted a cross one of the survivors had dug out in the snow near their camp. But then they soon learned this was actually a different cross dug in the snow by an Argentinian research team. But then, on the afternoon of December 22, 1972, everything changed when two helicopters touched down on the valley slope near the wrecked fuselage. The remaining survivors of Flight 571 came scrambling out of the plane all at once, waving their arms and cheering. Carlito Paez ran straight at the helicopter, waving a single red baby shoe over his head. These young men had survived for 72 days on the frozen mountain. The rescue team was only able to take about half the survivors with them during that first trip. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the remaining seven survivors until the rescue crew could return the following morning. Once the remaining 14 survivors were all back in Chile, reporters had a million questions for them. How had they all managed to survive for so long? And in particular... What had they eaten? Nando told the others to remain silent. But it wouldn't be long before rumors began to circulate about acts of cannibalism among the survivors. On December 23rd, the first news reports mentioning the possibility of cannibalism began to appear. Then on December 26th, two photos were published in a Chilean newspaper that showed a half-eaten human leg that was found near the crash site. After that, the press had a field day and the entire story became all focused on cannibalism. But the story of the Andes plane crash survivors is so much bigger than what they were forced to do to survive. It's a story of great tragedy and of the power of human endurance under the worst conditions. Over the years that followed, the crash site would come to be called the Valley of Tears. The plane's fuselage was doused in gasoline and set alight. The authorities and victims' families decided to bury the remains of the dead near the crash site in a common grave. Thirteen bodies remained untouched, including those of Nanda Parado's mother and sister. Fifteen other bodies were discovered in various states of being consumed. Next to the mass grave, a small stone altar was built. A plaque was placed on the altar that read, The world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O God to you. Two years after the rescue, Nando Parado and his father traveled to the crash site, where Nando's father left Nando's sister Susie's favorite teddy bear on the altar, marking her grave. Over the years that followed, the survivors attempted to reintegrate themselves into society. They were welcomed back in Uruguay as heroes, even though Nando Parado and the others didn't think of themselves that way. They were, in fact, survivors, joined by blood to become as close as brothers for the remainder of their lives. Nando would take his newfound fame and go on to become a race car driver for a short while. From there, he began another career as a successful television sportscaster. He got married, and he and his wife, Veronique, had two daughters. He and Veronique continued to work in Uruguayan television, where they write, direct, and produce. Roberto Canessa went back to medical school upon his return home. He married his high school sweetheart, and Nando would go on to become the godfather to their son, Alario. That young man would grow up to become the star player for the very same rugby team Nando, Roberto, and the others once played for. Gustavo Zurbino went on to become the CEO of his own pharmaceutical company as well as the head of the Uruguayan Rugby Association. He lives just down the street from Nando. Carlito Paez didn't have such an easy time. After his return to Uruguay, he struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. Things grew so dire that one day Nando and Roberto showed up on his doorstep to stage an intervention. They forced Carlito into rehab, and today he remains clean and sober. He enjoys spending time with his grandchildren. All the other survivors have their own tales of redemption. To this day, they all remain close, and each year on December 22nd, they gather with their families to celebrate the day they were rescued. Over the years, several of the survivors would retrace their steps and return both to Chile and from there to the very spot in the Andes Mountains where they crashed and where so many of their friends and family members died. During the 2000s, Nanda Parado, Roberta Canessa, and Gustavo Zerbina were in Chile with their families, heading back to the crash site. They drove through rough terrain across rocky back roads when at one point they spotted a familiar face. It was Sergio Catalan, the man who had once rode for 10 hours to get help. He was older now. His face wrinkled and his hair gone white. But he was still recognizable as the man who had saved them. Nando shouted to pull over. He and Roberto hopped out of the car and ran up to Sergio, shouting, Stop, stop! Then Nando said, Pardon me, sir, but we're lost, and we were hoping you could help us find our way home. The old man looked at them and began to cry. Spiritus is written and produced by me, Nadale, an Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Angela for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, signed thank you cards from yours truly, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews really does help us boost our numbers in Apple's charts, which in turn helps spread the show to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. We're also available on most of the other places you get your podcasts, including Stitcher and Spotify. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. I also encourage you to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and I'd love to hear from you on any of these platforms. You can also even send me a friendly email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, I want to take this moment to tell you about another fantastic podcast you Conspirators listeners might be interested in. On My Dark Path, your host M.F. Thomas leads you on a journey through his extensive research and his own travels to some of the darkest corners of the globe. Here he is to tell you a little about My Dark Path. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host of the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, I explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal based on my travels around the world. Episodes include a haunted hotel in Taiwan, murders in a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, UFO encounters in New England, and how the story of Frankenstein inspired the inventor of the pacemaker. So, if you geek out over these topics, you're among friends at My Dark Path. Listen on any podcast platform, Visit MyDarkPath.com or see our episodes on YouTube. Thanks for listening and walking the dark paths of the world with me.